Welcome to the European Greens podcast, where we talk about the way forward to a greener and fairer Europe, together with green leaders and activists. The European Greens are a European political party that brings together national parties sharing the same green values, like democracy, feminism, support of LGBTQ+, and climate action. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and together, let's green our future. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Green Talking Heads. You are listening to the second part of the Focus episode on platform work. In uh, part one, we had the pleasure to host Green MEP Kim Van Sparentak, and today we are in conversation with the brilliant James Farrar. These two episodes really complement each other, so if you haven't listened to the first one, I highly recommend that you press pause and go listen to that one first. It is super worth it, trust me. Uh, so back to today's guest, James Farrar, who's the General Secretary of UK's largest trade union for licensed private hire drivers and couriers. James is also the founder of Worker Info Exchange, and that's a non-profit organization dedicated to helping workers access and gain insight from data collected from them at work. You might have heard of James before, as he co-led the successful 2016 workers' right claims against Uber in the UK, which he will tell us all about today. In our conversation, we discussed how does it look like to organize and fight back against a multi-billion platform, the impacts of the gig economy on the workers' health and digital rights, and also his observations and hopes around the growing global solidarity around demanding accountability from these very powerful gig platforms. Enjoy the episode. James, thank you so much for uh, being part of Green Talking Heads and for accepting our invitation for uh, the podcast episode today. Oh, thanks Um, very much for having me. Yes. I want to start very simply because we are recording now uh, very close to the month of February already. And by the time the episode go out, it will be uh, February. So uh, the first month of the year is already almost finished. And I just want to know how has the year started for you? (laughs) Um, Well, as far as I know, yes. (laughs) Um, I've escaped COVID. I got COVID at the end of last year. Uh, My first um, brush with it. And um, thankfully, it was very mild. Um, But a lot of people in the gig economy have not been so lucky because they have not been able to uh, avoid exposure. And there have been quite a few deaths in the the United Kingdom. The uh, Office for National Statistics, the government statistics organization, found that uh, drivers, um, together with chefs and security guards, had the highest occupational fatality rate in the pandemic. Uh, So it's really an important reminder that um, uh, gig economy is full of risk, including occupational risk. Yeah, absolutely. That's something very important to mention. And I think that was uh, quite a big emphasis on that at the very beginning of confinement and the pandemic, but somehow, you know, it it became a bit less of a priority. Um, I'd like to take a little step back and ask you actually at the very, very beginning, um, how did you even transition to uh, becoming an Uber driver? Well, I've been working in tech for quite a few years in enterprise technology and software, um, in a software company. And I was leaving that to return to activism. I've always had a career that's been from activism to to business and back to activism again. And I was particularly interested in supply chains, value chains, and the fragmentation of the kind of business networks that we live in. 
And I was investigating that. That started with an investigation in Romania relating to land grabbing, uh, a problem uh, that should be a problem, I believe, in consumer supply chains further up the chain. And I was doing that and was going back and forth to Romania. And I thought, I'll just enter the gig economy and become a driver at the weekend so that I can focus on my social enterprise work and my activism, uh, but also earn a little bit of money on the side. And I did that for a while. And one evening I was assaulted on the job and I went to the police and well, I thought this was going to be okay. I thought the advantage of working for a digital platform is that everything is going to be so traceable and everything will be taken care of. And if it was just some passenger you didn't know that was giving you cash, this issue would be more difficult to deal with. And this is the advantage of working for a digital platform. It's safer for people and it's more accountable for everybody. Um, but to my surprise, I found that um, Uber would not cooperate with the police in identifying who the passenger was. And it went on for about 12 weeks. Um, Uber was demanding that the police go and get a court order and do this, that and the other. And eventually the police said to me, um, well, look, how, how badly do you want justice? Uh, because this is taking up a lot of our time and we can't, you know, we can't as a police force, we can't justify it. And at that point, I said, well, if it's, if it's going to be something or nothing, I guess it better be something. Um, and we persevered, and eventually Uber did identify the passenger, uh, which was all good. But that's what started me to look at the contract, because I couldn't really understand, well, where does the duty of care lie here? Why, why would the company not want to um, care for me and care for what happened at work um, on their platform? And that's when I realized... When I looked at the contract, you know, we all sign these contracts when we go online, you know, we, you know, tick, tick, tick. Um, and that's hundreds of pages of terms and conditions for app services. Um, but when I went through it very carefully, I could see that what Uber was saying, still saying, is that I'm the principal in this transport business and the passenger is my customer and that um, Uber and other gig economy, Uber is not unique here. So Uber is almost a... Uh, euphemism for all the gig platforms they all operate the same way um, but Uber was setting itself up as merely a booking agent in the cloud and had no direct responsibility for anything that happened and in fact it makes clear that the risk is all mine um, and the accountability is all mine um, so they had no motivation for getting involved and they had every motivation not to get involved because they could avoid in getting involved, they, they could trigger two risks for themselves. One is you begin to trigger a public liability risk for passengers, passenger safety. That's not something they want to do, uh, in my opinion. And the second thing is that they would trigger an employment relationship by, ex by expressing a duty of care to the worker. You're expressing or you're um, displaying an employment relationship and once you start doing that, then workers can start to claim their rights. And they didn't want to do any of those things. And that is why um, my situation became illustrative. So I, at that point, I started talking to a lawyer. And out of that grew the worker status uh, claim case that went to the Supreme Court. Finally, um, this time last year, February 2021, uh, where it was confirmed that we are workers with rights working for Uber. Right. 
And so in that context, and because you did mention uh, that you went back um, to, to activism a few times, mm. and so how uh, did it happen then within this situation and then you know, working towards creating a, a union for app drivers and couriers as well? Well, it, you know, it became really obvious that from the very beginning that you can't really expect a miracle in the courtroom. You can't expect a single legal judgment to be a silver bullet to solve all problems. It's important, but you can't rely upon that alone. And you can't rely upon that for two reasons. Um, one is that the laws that you're dealing with in the courtroom are often unjust to begin with. And so you need to have a broader public policy debate about what kind of laws we need, not only now, but in the future. So it's very important for that conversation to be getting underway. And it did get underway in Britain. You know, when we find at our first hearing, just before our first hearing uh, at the tribunal in 2016, Theresa May was then the prime minister and she announced a review into the gig economy. Of course, nothing has happened, but there was a major government review called the um, uh, Good Work, the Matthew Taylor Review. And that was kicked off, I believe, as a, as a response to the government understanding the inadequacy of the current law to deal with some of the problems we had in modern work. The second part of this, though, is uh, it's almost sort of a political one. What big employers like to do is to isolate and marginalise a few people who are bringing a claim or who are being worker activists. And so if we didn't build a groundswell around us in terms of a campaign, that even if we won, what employers would like to do is shrug it off and say, okay, well, this applies to this small group of claimants. And fine, you know, we, we've lost the case. We'll settle with you. We'll make some cosmetic changes to our business model now. And then everybody else, you know, we'll roll the dice and everybody has to start all over again. And so unless you want to prevent a situation where individuals are having to individually every time go back to the courts for remedy, you have to build a campaign of a political campaign of workers organized around this issue. Because then when you do win, you win for everybody. If you don't run a campaign, you only win for yourself. And what's the point in that? And so we started organizing uh, workers in uh, 2015 um, uh, as an organization. We became a union and now we're a certified trade union uh, with the App Drivers and Couriers Union. Um, uh, and I, uh, I believe we've got the largest uh, base of Uber drivers and couriers uh, in the United Kingdom at the moment. Um, but also, you know, beyond that, um, in working, well, we'll come to it, I guess, but, but in, I recognize that even employment law isn't going to be enough alone to target some of the issues in the gig economy. We also have to look at this through the lens of digital rights, um, which I'm sure we'll get to in a moment. Yes, thanks so much. Um, I think that's a, that's a, a very impressive, you know, uh, example of, of organizing, but you know, there's a, a mention that we did in, in the very first part of this episode that we recorded with Kim Van Sparentak, who's a Green MP, mm. a member of the European Parliament. That was specifically the link also in terms of the health of uh, the drivers, physical and mm. mental health mm. and their rights. Um, and in your case and all the, the, the other drivers that, that supported you as well, you know, the stress, the pressure, uh, the legal risks also that you're taking, like how does this all look like? Well, the biggest pressure as an activist is that these cases turn on the law 
but they also turn on the facts of your particular case. So the worry for you as an individual is that the case that you've presented, which becomes a test case for everybody, that that the facts that you have been able to present are strong and that your witness testimony is strong um, enough to carry that case. Um, because sometimes, you know, the cases are lost because on the on the basis of, of facts not being strong enough or the wrong set of facts or the, or the wrong example, if you like. And so that's your pressure as a as an individual claimant that that you haven't that you've done everything you could and that your case was as strong as it could be to carry it for everybody. And so I really felt when we won at the Supreme Court that at least for my individual journey, I could put that bag down. This far fight is far from over. Um, but that was the biggest, I think, pressure over the years is to is to make sure that the facts of, are associated with my experience that became um, testimony for a, a test case uh, was strong enough to get everybody across the line. And it, and it was. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. But in terms of, you know, health and welfare of drivers, you know, what we go through as activists is nothing towards the difficulty of the job. You know, drivers were regularly working 90 hours a week because the way it works is, you know, we've we've done the maths on this. It takes about 30 hours a week to break even because you've got you've got vehicle insurance fuel to pay for. Mm -hmm. Um, So before you can earn something for yourself, you must work 30 hours. And so you work, you know, sort of 40, 50 hours to maybe get across the minimum wage threshold and you work, um, you know, 80, 90 hours a week to get to the sort of London living wage threshold. Uh, and so that's very difficult because it can feel like at times you're like a boiling frog because most people have a number in their head of what they need to bring home each week to meet their bills and feed their families. So let's say that figure is, you know, 500 euros. Well, you know, it may have taken you 60 hours a week to get that this year. But inevitably, as more people come on the platform and as these platforms drop prices, which they inevitably do, then it's next year, it's going to be 70 hours and the year after it's going to be 80 and 90 hours. And that's that's what happens is you're in this industry, you're working hard and then you have to keep on that treadmill for longer and longer uh, in order to bring something home. And so we see uh, fatigue is a huge risk in the industry. So in, in, in the UK, uniquely, people are able to opt out of the working time directive. And so, and there is no control in the way that there are for truckers on working hours. So it's really quite, quite dangerous. And our, you know, our um, road safety laws are very strict. So if you get into an accident and you kill somebody, you will go to jail. And so that's a, that's a a, a huge issue. So road safety aspect of this. And of course, the platforms are not responsible because they say that you're the principal, you're on your own for that. Um, But also, I think in terms of um, physical health, a lot of a lot of people in the industry have got diabetes, um, you know, from just being behind the wheel, non-healthy lifestyle, a sedentary lifestyle. Um, but then also lots of people suffer from anxiety and depression um, from being alone so much in, in a high pressure because it is quite high pressure to work, to drive in, in, in urban areas. And then finally, we see, you know, unfortunately, a lot of family breakdown because, you know, the relationships break down because just people aren't home. Um, so it's uh, it's quite a bleak outlook in terms of of, um, of welfare and safety 
but you know it can be cured it can be cured when people have worker rights and they can have holiday pay you see i never really understood the value of holiday pay until i did this job for a while because um when i did a corporate career you know holiday pay was you know time you took off the job and you went away somewhere or whatever but holiday pay when you're a precarious worker means you can afford to stop working because without holiday pay you can't afford to stop working you've got to keep working um, seven days a week, six days a week, 52 weeks a year. And to be able to afford to stop working, that was the whole point of holiday pay. I think we've lost sight of that. Uh, and that was a really sharp lesson for me to learn again. It's it's really great that you're, that you're providing so many extremely clear insights and, you know, the reality of what it is to actually drive uh, for this platform and work for this platform, because... One thing they're really good at is really emphasizing on the flexibility that they provide and, you know, and how they give you all the tools and it's all um, easy and, and, and fun. You know, there, there, there is a deceit at the heart of the gig economy. Well, there, there's no gig. There's a job. It's never been a gig. Um, that's not the experience of people who deliver food or who um, drive vehicles. They're not gigging. You know, the idea that they might be a jobbing actor or a musician or a poet, that's exceedingly rare. These are people who are working full time. There is no gig. And this idea of flexibility is another thing that's at the heart of this framing that is kind of deceitful because, well, of course, everybody wants flexibility and autonomy in their work. Of course, of course we do. We all do. Whatever job you have, we'd all like a little bit more flexibility. But what's at the heart of this flexibility trade-off is rights. You know, if we if we allow you to log in anytime you want, and you know, therefore you should have no rights. Um, that that isn't that isn't a fair deal. It's not something that most workers really sign up to. But that's implicit. That's implicit in this whole framing of the gig economy in that way. Is that in order to have this flexibility? you have to give up rights in order to have this casualization of the job so that you can be a gigger, you know, then you have to surrender the idea that you're in an employment relationship. Well, nobody agreed to that framing. That's a framing that was imposed upon us. Um, and it also, it has a really um, deleterious effect even on the public debate. Now the, the EU draft directive for platform work is absolutely excellent, but even it, even it has adopted some language that's harmful. For example, they talk about in the section about algorithmic management, they talk about having remedies from from your account being deactivated. But it's not an account, it's a job. And you haven't been deactivated, you've been terminated, you've been dismissed from your job. Uh, and you know, there is just a small example of how that sort of language of the gig economy has 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 confused our um, conception of work and the rights associated with it. And it's very important that we, we insist on the framing that it's a job, it's work, and there are rights associated with that. We've got to stop talking about gigs, accounts, deactivations, uh, and so on, because that's all language to distract and confuse us from what we're really dealing with. Absolutely. I think it's a key point also. And I was, I was listening to a, a Belgian um, writer who had a case, a case court against Deliveroo talking about the flexibility is actually only on the employer side, if we can call them employers, mm. you know, because they have the flexibility of having such a huge pool of workers who most likely come from precarious background and are, you know, ready to accept um, 
um, very tricky working conditions. They have the flexibility of terminating their, um, you know, working situation anytime. They have the flexibility of surveilling them and really the flexibility is only on, only on their side. I completely agree. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're working 30 hours a week to break even, where's the flexibility? There's, there's no, there's, there's, you know, it's been, it was mentioned, I think, in, in, the, in the judgments that we've got is that, you know, that Uber had spun this idea that we were all entrepreneurs. And what the judge said, the idea that there were 30,000 micro entrepreneurs making up this sort of mosaic in London, um, he said, was faintly ridiculous. Um, and it, it is absolutely true. He said the only, the only autonomy, the only flexibility uh, that these drivers really had in terms of running their own business was to just get in the car and drive more. That's the only choice you had. Uh, you didn't, you didn't control the customer. You didn't know who the customer was. You couldn't build your own business. You couldn't um, charge what you liked. You were absolutely under the control of somebody else. There is no way that you're running your own business or you have flexibility to build a business. That's not how this works. Another thing that they're really good at, I find, is finding specific tactics to actually discourage a lot of workers to fight back. Uh, and uh, so you're mentioning in an interview that, you know, it's uh, you have to be a little bit out of your mind to actually start this fight against them because you go against, like, you know, a billion-dollar company, uh, PR experts, lobbyists, and and it's just a lot. So in, in, in that context also, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit, a little bit about how you felt supported uh, by the union. I had tremendous support from my current union, the App Drivers and Couriers Union. Uh, absolutely fantastic. And particularly the solidarity uh, from, from all our members, because we are a, we are a union of, of thousands of members now, but they are all um, uniquely employed as either drivers or couriers. So it's a craft union in that regard. Of, of of drivers and couriers in precarious work. And, and we have an organizing objective also around digital rights and recognition. That's why we're called the App Drivers and Couriers Union in, in recognizing that the industry is increasingly being um, digitally mediated. Um, so the, the, the support was really, really, really important. But it was also important to just get over the message that look, you know, um, at a certain point, you know, we write a complaint, we give evidence, in 2015, after that, it becomes an argument of law uh, until 2021, um, six, seven, six years later. Um, but in order to sustain this effort, it was really important that the union got behind it, that the drivers got behind it, and that it is their case. And, and what, what do you see at large, the role of, of unions in general in framing really the, the gig economy and protecting uh, platform workers for the future? Well, there, you know, there's, there is um, no uh, shortcut to collective action. It is shoe leather organizing. And this is, this is something that I think is really important to understand that there are, you know, there are new unions, uh, you know, that maybe claim to have a new approach to organizing, but there is no new approach to organizing. Organizing is about workers getting together, building trust and solidarity amongst themselves and preparing to resist and fight back. And there is no shortcut to that. That, that requires time. And it's a bit like, you know, it's uh, somebody once said 50% of success is showing up. And uh, I think that's really very true, this sort of consistency 
of being visible and being involved and organizing meetings on a weekly basis. We always had a, had a had, had regular monthly ba- meetings rather, but we always had those meetings, whether we had two people or a hundred, we always had those meetings every month. So people always knew that they could come uh, and they did. And that consistency and visibility and then doing the casework uh, and and writing the agenda of everything because this platform is always changing, so you always have to change your tactics as well. Um, then that was, you know, that that is what has built our union to where it is today. Um, uh, but it's also been absolutely critical because the fight isn't my fight. I just signed a complaint. It is it is the union's fight. Um, uh, but it it is really um, it's really really important. Unions have never been more important, but. The, the the perhaps the thing that's really important with these gig economy companies is that they are huge they are huge platforms so the stakes are really high so in in the old days maybe we could build collective power in a smaller firm in a smaller town quite easy to do relatively speaking but how do you build collective power against huge platforms like uber or amazon you know where where are their offices even <laughs> if you could find them and the workforce is distributed and, and so there are two ways you can you can do this. So there there are increasingly some high profile recognition deals that are done with these companies, uh, and that's a good start. That's something to be welcomed. But you know, you either have a choice with these companies to to be come from the the bottom up um, and enter an agreement from a position of real worker strength. Or you can come from the top down where you partner with that union and then you try to build your membership in partnership with that um, with that platform uh, on a top-down basis. I, I think to have real strength and sustained power with these platforms in the longer run, it's very important to enter into these agreements from a position of strength from the bottom up rather than top-down. And just just continuing to talk about the future of work, I know you're also working in depth on the issue around algorithm and data and how much these platforms are also using that. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love to, to uh, let you talk a little bit more about your work with the Worker Info Exchange. Like, what is it? What's your role within it? Well, it became very apparent to me during the legal uh, struggle for worker rights at Uber, that data was at the center of this. Um, because there was a memorable moment in the in the tribunal when Uber said, look at this guy. He cancels half the work we sent to him. And then he complains he's not earning the minimum wage. He shouldn't get the minimum wage. If he's able to cancel half the work that we sent to him, this would be ridiculous. He could stay at home, he could sit on his sofa, he could cancel every job and still get minimum wage while, while he's sitting at home watching soaps. But what Uber hadn't said was that if you looked at the work that I did do, not the work that I didn't do, but the work that I actually completed, my productivity was very high. So there was a reference week in 2015 that went to tribunal. It was, it was in July 2015 when I worked 91 hours on that platform. And I earned five pounds an hour compared to whatever seven fifty was minimum wage at the time, I believe. And Uber said, 
you know, you canceled all that work. That's your fault. You, you earned five pounds an hour. But when we looked at their onboarding documents, what they said was that you should be completing between 1.4 and 1.6 jobs per hour working in a 40 to 60 hour week. So that's 1 to 4, 1.4 to 1.6 jobs per hour, 40 to 60 hour a week. But I was doing 1.59 jobs per hour at the 91 hour week that I worked. And yet Uber was telling the courts that I didn't deserve the minimum wage for that. I was at the higher end of productivity they expected at 40 to 6 hours. I was still at, at 91 hours. And not only that, they went to Parliament with this story. They went to the um, uh, UK Parliament um, Business Environmental um, uh, Select Committee inquiry into the future world of work. And they told the same story of the 91 hours and the driver not accepting the work. And so it really became very clear to me we need to have access to our data. And the Data Protection Act in the UK is UK's GDPR, same as the EU GDPR. It gives us certain very important rights. It gives us the right to access the data and to have algorithmic transparency of how we're managed. Uh, and thirdly, certain protections from unfair automated decisions. So in practice, how we apply those rights is that we, with the access rights, we can build a trust. So now we can really understand what are we truly earning per hour? How was our time on the platform utilized? And was there fairness in how the work is allocated and dispatched? This is really important in the gig economy because what gig platforms do is they oversupply labor relative to the work. And that drives down their response time. So they're about 40 to 50% of your time working is waiting for work. And that could be cut down. That's causing congestion, poor air quality, and diluted yields for drivers. That's why they have to work longer and longer hours because there's more and more people chasing less work. Uh, and that, that has to be tackled. And, and we can tackle that by measuring how much we're actually earning per every hour that we're out there. And secondly, uh, in terms of um, work allocation, is there fairness in the work allocation and, uh, and then the quality of quantity of work? So that's what we do with the access rights. But then on the algorithmic transparency, what we're seeing is that drivers are profiled. So we're profiled, and then those profiles are used to drive automated decisions around work allocation, performance management, and even dismissal. So you and I could be scored together, and we could sit on the same street corner. But because they have a better profile of you, you'll get the work, and I won't. Now, that's okay in an employment relationship. That's performance management. And there's rules and rights that go with that. But this is the gig economy where there are no rules and there are no rights and you're not protect and it's not transparent. And that's not acceptable. And that's why algorithmic transparency is so, so, so important. And um, uh, we, you know, so we've brought some cases in, in Amsterdam for drivers who were unfairly dismissed by, we say, an automated decision. And we, you know, we got default judgments for six drivers that they'd be paid compensation of 150,000 euros uh, and they'd be reinstated. Uh, from from work, um, so this this area of getting algorithmic transparency is is really really important because then you can understand how you've been managed, and then that's important future evidence of a relationship that is employment, uh, and so you can access those rights. There, those types of algorithmic controls are increasingly being hidden, um, and then the protection from these automated decisions because these platforms don't really want to employ anybody inside or outside. So they want to be able to automate the distribution of work and they want to be able to automate the management of that work and including your firing. But we have protections from those types of unfair automated decisions. It's really, really important we have transparency 
around this. The final thing to say is that we're seeing um, a huge increase in the level of surveillance uh, in the gig economy, surveillance tech. So real-time identification of drivers through facial recognition systems and also surveillance on geolocation basis. So if we detect you in two places at the same time, we can accuse you of account fraud, for example. And so the facial recognition system is an interesting one because it's um, Uber, for example, used Microsoft Face. But the Microsoft has agreed with the ACLU um, after the uh, Black, Black Lives Matters uh, protests in America that they would no longer provide that product to any U.S. police force because they felt that they would be there at moment there were not the right controls and protections in place, and this technology is not um, is not is not one hundred percent. So Microsoft and MIT did a study that found that this um, facial recognition technology has got a 97% um, uh, success rate. Uh, it's got a 3% failure rate, but that, three, that grows to 12% for people of color and 20% for women of color. And so in London, for example, we have 100,000 licensed drivers. So you're looking at between 12 and 20,000 people, which is 94% minority workforce. So you're looking at 12 to 20%. 20,000 people a year are having their lives turned upside down because unaccountable, opaque use of this technology against the workforce that have no rights nominally. Um, so this is another reason why the work that we're doing, Worker Info Exchange, is so really important because increasingly digital rights is the gateway uh, to worker rights. So we've just issued this report um, managed by bots, data-driven exploitation in the gig economy. We're kind of chronicle the work that we've been doing to, to get access to data, to uncover algorithmic transparency and to challenge uh, unfair automated decisions uh, with, um, with mixed results. And we've got some great uh, worker testimonies there um, from multiple, multiple people across platforms that have been affected. Amazing. And we'll put the link uh, to the report on, in the description of the episode, as well as the website of, of Worker Info Exchange, because the work is just uh, yeah extremely important and, and, and very insightful. So thanks so much for that. I think it's it's so interesting how you know we touched on on so many different things. You also mentioned you know the the air quality aspects and uh, traffic, also digital rights, uh, racist algorithm, uh, and so there's just so many issues that actually are part of this conversation. And, and to end the episode, I'd like to ask you, what are the things that you're worrying about, but also the things that you're hopeful for? And so what are you hopeful for as well in terms of the future of work, of course, in the context of digitalization and also gamification of work and also uh, employment misclassification? What I'm worried about is that the experience of digitally mediated work in the gig economy um, has become a kind of an experiment that can be rolled out across the greater economy. If you look at some of the big four consulting firms, the, the buzzword of contingent labor, open labor, um, and this has been accelerated by digital transformation in companies and the pandemic, which has sort of forced an acceleration of remote working. Um, and what we'll, what we may be seeing is a casualization of those corporate employment relationships in the same way that we've seen in the gig economy. These companies would love to be able to sort of cut loose the employment 
strictures as we know them and make everybody really flexible you know hey you know come on you know you can you can come in here and you can work on a project in our company for six months and then you can you can pack up and 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 move to somewhere else sort of that kind of nomadic uh working and but that you know the the problem with that is is that it it's precarious it's very difficult um but also who's going to invest in in um, learning and development i guess they would expect you to do it yourself but this this would create a very insecure uh, existence for all workers. The type of insecurity and precarity that um, low paid workers in the gig economy have suffered would be would spread out right across the rest of the economy. And I think the conditions are right for that because uh, you know the the technologies there, the impetus of the pandemic has has accelerated it, um, and the desire for companies to do this. Um. So that's that's the thing I would worry about the most. But the thing that I'm kind of more hopeful about is that, you know, a few years ago, people thought it was impossible for us to be able to organize against gig economy employers because of the imbalance, because of the asymmetric relationship of power between very many workers and a very big platform. Um, but where we've proven that that's it's possible, it's possible to resist in court, but it's also possible to resist on the streets in and in the lobbies in the workplace and in the media and that's you have to do all of those things and and that has happened and that is happening the other thing that is beginning to happen too is is growing international solidarity so because the experience of the gig economy work is universal that's that's the great evil, but it's also the great strength because now we can work with our colleagues in Nigeria, in South Africa, in Kenya, in India, and we all have this shared experience. It all works exactly the same way, and we all share the same kind of tactics for for resistance. Um, and so that is that has become a great opportunity because we can now also hold these platforms to account because we can say. You, we're not going to allow you to take advantage maybe of weaker rule of law or enforcement of law in one market or you know distressed labor conditions in another market to push through the types of practices that you don't do um, maybe in Western Europe. You know, we, can, we can work together to build that solidarity and that, I think that's, that's a great advantage. And also in terms of digital rights, what we learn by exercising our digital rights in Europe, we can share with our uh, worker colleagues in North America who don't have the same GDPR uh, type um, access and rights. And, and also the same in the global south, because many of those countries do have really good um, data protection rights, but again, poorly enforced. I mean, they're poorly enforced here as well. But we can share, we can share that common experience of digital algorithmic management and digitally mediated work. That's a common experience everywhere. And we can turn that to our advantage. And the final thing to say is that, look, you know, this sort of classic um, struggle, it's been about the working classes, the, the labor versus capital um, dynamic. But in this struggle, we can open up a new advantage, and that is data. That is digital rights. That is, that is our data. That is our data that's used as a currency of power against us. Now, I'm not entitled to come in and say, that's my money, that's my capital. I am entitled to say, that's my labor. But I'm now able to say, that's my labor and that is my data. That is my intellectual property. 
I would like to have access to that, please. Uh, and so that's that's another means of the struggle of production um, uh, that we can um, claim control and claim access to. Um, and we just need to get better organized of doing it. Mm, amazing. James, thank you so much. This has been such an insightful conversation and I'm really thankful for your time uh, and your expertise on all of these topics. So thanks so much for being part of the Green Talking Heads. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the part two of the episode of the Green Talking Heads on platform work. James has such an impressive personal trajectory and it was so, so, so interesting uh, listening to his journey in tech, activism, and now his work on analyzing in depth the impact of data-driven surveillance and exploitation in the gig economy. Make sure you check out the report managed by bots that he mentioned during the episode, for which we will put uh, a link in the description of the episode. You can also follow James on Twitter, where he goes by his full name, at James Farrar. And talking about following, the best way to follow the work of the European Greens and make sure you never miss an episode of the podcast is to follow us on social media and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks so much. Take care and see you soon. <laughs>